Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and welcome back to our series on Whitley Strieber. This is part two. While working on communion, possibly in an attempt to get another contract, Strieber reports further experiences with the visitors to his publisher. A year later, in September of 1988, Strieber released Transformation, The Breakthrough the underwhelming second installment of the Communion Trilogy. The New Age stream-of-consciousness writing style makes the new adventures of Strieber kind of hard to follow. A couple of interesting stories aside, the book is a boring, incoherent mess. Uh, Transformation didn't do as well as its predecessor, and in fact, it did not even sell half as many copies. Uh, The book was a critical and financial flop. Transformation opens with Whitley waking up in the middle of the night. He decides to tour the house and check on his son, Andrew. To his consternation, he finds his son's bed empty. Thinking his son might be sleeping outside in his tent, he grabs a flashlight and heads on the porch. There, he sees a gigantic black mass in the sky blotting out the stars. As he proceeds to walk toward the tent, he hears a voice. Can you go back upstairs by yourself, or do you want us to help you? On the far side of the road, he sees three small, blocky, dark shapes hanging above the brush. Whitley believes he has interrupted his son's abduction. Suddenly, he feels a pain in his chest and can hear the blood pounding in his head. He thinks he's having a heart attack or a seizure. As the creatures start floating in his direction, the black mass disappears and reappears as a yellow disc and just darts off like a meteor. Both mental and physical agony, to not anger the visitors, he painfully heads back inside the house to his bed and immediately falls into a dreamless black sleep. The next morning, Whitley wakes up to Andrew bursting through the door with his stuffed dog under his arm and a wide grin on his face as if nothing happened the night before. Whitley wants to have a relationship with the visitors, but he's completely terrified of them. The majority of the book is dedicated to his many attempts to overcome his fear of them by venturing into the woods in the middle of the night to face them. He chickens out breaks down, cries, and crawls back to the cabin, defeated almost every single time. Whitley manages to partially reconstruct what happened to him during those six missing weeks in Italy. He remembers being given a free ticket to Egypt at his hotel and almost instantly entering a dilapidated, shitty, noisy, smelly plane through a door in the floor. He has no recollection of how he got to the airport. Inside, stricken with nausea, uh, he is given drops of a clear liquid out of an eyedropper onto his tongue by what he perceives to be a nurse or a stewardess. He is seated next to a tall blonde man who describes him as a coach reading aloud from what looks like a book made out of limp cloth. This shit is just 
It's getting crazy here. He then exits the plane through a hatch in the floor and is taken to some sort of oasis in the desert by little blue guys. They reach a cliff where uh, stands an ancient building they call a university that can only be accessed through a side door on top of a large, sharp volcanic rocks. As they approach the door, they're stopped by two very unfriendly, tall, skinny men with enormous black almond-shaped eyes. Strieber is extremely uncomfortable in their presence. He feels like they can see right through him. He's told by one of them that he's not ready yet. Whitley is devastated. The two tall guys leave. One of the blue dwarves exclaims, They said you weren't ready, but now they're gone. And the trio proceeds inside the building. Whitley is taken in the middle of a circle etched on the floor, at the end of a long featureless corridor made out of green stones. He gets the Saturday night fever and can't resist the urge to dance, because you can't put Whitley in the corner. Thank you for writing that, Jeff. Overwhelmed with excitement, he finds himself momentarily inside other people and other lives, basically like Sam from Quantum Leap. In the middle of what I hope was a sick breakdancing move, he sees himself in ancient Rome, where a portly red-headed man in a white tonga rushes toward him. Quote, The dance took on great passion and intensity. Round and round I went sailing through the armies of lives, places familiar and unfamiliar. It was as if my soul had hungered this. I sailed round and round and round, going faster and faster. I don't know how long I danced, but it was glorious." End quote. After his dance recital, he is taken to an unfurnished room where he sleeps on the floor. He is awakened by two loud human men dressed in military clothes, standing outside the room behind a white tape, filming it. One of, him, one of them asks him, why are they keeping you outside of the enclosure? Like, this feels like Tralfamador here in a way, you know? Like, it's very Tralfamadory. Whitley replies he doesn't know, which infuriates the man greatly. Then, a pale woman hands him a giant fig and forces him to eat it. What is it with these aliens and forcing him to eat fruit? The fruit is so bitter, it makes his head feel like it's going to split open. There's a group of people watching him from behind the white tape with, his te with, his, with tears in his eyes. Next, he ventures alone into an Ewok village full of shacks made out of adobe and dried tree branches. Inside the shacks, he finds wooden bowls and discarded blue uniforms. Some of the blue dwarves are just standing there laughing at him. That's all he can remember. One night, reading an essay in the living room, he notices one of his cats acting strange, as if it was scared of something, which was uncharacteristic of him because he was a bold, friendly cat, as we're told by Whitley. At that moment, Strieber hears a series of nine knocks, in groups of three followed by a lighter double one on the side of the house. He describes the knocking sound, uh, the knocks sounding as if they were produced by a machine. Both of his cats are now staring at the wall, riveted with terror. These knocks were coming from just below the line of the roof. 
at a spot approximately 18 feet above the gravel driveway. Below the point of origin of the knocks were two open windows. Had anybody been out on the driveway with a ladder, I would have certainly have heard their movements on the gravel. End quote. Strieber claims it would have been literally impossible for anyone to get on the roof with a ladder and a long stick because they would have been they would have activated the move, movement sensitive lights. In addition, it would be next to impossible for anyone to stand on the roof of the cabin because it is extremely steep and he would have heard them moving about. It was the visitors. Looking at the clock, he realizes he has lost three hours of time. He vividly remembers going back to the door and struggling to get it open. He also recalls standing on the deck and seeing something gleaming. Three pairs of large black eyes at waist level, barely visible in the dim light. He then has a vision of standing before a field of yellow flowers and children running past him, waving and laughing. This is basically Sting's field of gold. They run up a hill turn into a column of light, and explode into stars. A voice tells him, this is the field where the sins of the world are buried. End quote. Um, Streeper Rooney here has some very interesting dreams and stuff, and visions, and um, all of them are strange. In the days following the incident, Whitley tries everything to duplicate the Knox. He throws stones at the roof, climbs up the roof, and hits the house with a stick, has people tap on different locations on the wall with no success. He even experiments on the cats. At night, he climbs up on the roof with a ladder and repeats the knocks the best he can, but the cats are indifferent and not going crazy like they did that night. Whitley talks about his vision to his, to his brother who says he's had a private fantasy of a field of yellow flowers all of his life. The following spring, after an absence of three or four weeks, Whitley returns to the cabin to a field of yellow flowers in the same spot where he had his vision. During his absence, the landscape architect planted the area with yellow daffodil bulbs without knowing about his visions. So that's interesting. One evening... Whitley, Anne, Andrew, Whitley's brother, and a friend of the family are taking a walk in the meadows behind the cabin. Whitley suddenly hears an old low voice say, Arrogance! I can do what I wish to you. Whitley's brother sees something strange in the sky. All five of them proceed to watch a star move toward the moon, disappear and reappear on the other side of it. It seems to get larger and closer to them. It disappears, reappears, and disappears for good. Then they notice a light around them in the meadow. Whitley has the impression that three people are coming out of the woods toward them. Whitley's brother stares deeply into the woods and later recalls he too had the impression there were three people coming for them, and that he had an overwhelming desire to walk toward them. Schreiber transfers all his funds to a different bank, gets a phone call from his accountant who tells him his money has disappeared. A couple days later, he gets a call from the bank that this time, and they explain it was due to a computer bug and that everything is in order now. Whitley, of course, 
blames the visitors for his banking transactions. The visitors take a great interest in his sugar intake. One afternoon, out on the town with, the f- with his family, Strieber is enjoying an ice cream cone when all of a sudden he hears a voice of a child yell at him. Can you stop eating that? He looks around, but there's nobody beside him. He throws the cone away and immediately hears three voices shouting in unison. He threw away ice cream for us. Then begins a series of strange events where the visitors appear to him in the middle of the night and chastise him for his diet and sweets addiction. Quote, I found that it was amazingly difficult. I ended up in the ridiculous position of pacing the floor over the fact that there was a box of Oreos in the cupboard. End quote. Strieber compares his situation to early Christians who would go to the desert to uh, emulate Christ with fasting and prayer and spend long periods of time trying to reach Christ through self-denial and privatization. He goes four days without ice cream, only succumbs. He goes four days without ice cream and only succumbs to the power of Haagen-Dazs. One night, after he and his wife observed a UFO from their hot tub, Strieber wakes up abruptly in the middle of the night to a menacing bug-like creature crouching beside his bedside table with its big black eyes glaring at him. Despite being absolutely terrified by the being, he also feels some kind of motherly love coming from it. The being rises up beside the bed like some huge predatory spider, tilting its head from side to side. It lays something on Whitley's head and is instantly transported to a place with a stone floor and a low stone table in the middle of it with a set of iron shackles. He watches as a naked man is lying down some steps and attached to those shackles. The man stares at Whitley with sad eyes. A taller person wearing black appears behind him. Moving quickly, it proceeds to beat the naked man with a whip, Passion of the Christ style. He is almost torn to pieces by the fury of the beating. As the man's face collapses in agony, Whitley hears a voice behind him. He failed to get you to obey him, and now he must bear the consequences, end quote. Like, I'm going to be honest, like, Whitley just bringing out, like, the, the frustrations and beatdowns that people just don't deserve. Damn it, Whitley. Whitley keeps watching, and all of a sudden, he hears the familiar voice of the female Grey from Communion reassuring him that it isn't real. The beating goes on and on, and the voice keeps telling him, It isn't real, Witty. It isn't real. Whitley recalls, quote, That didn't make me feel better. My heart was sick for the poor man in front of me. I knew perfectly well that this whole business had to do with the eating of sweets, as stupid as that sounds, end quote. Like, what the fuck is with these visitors? Honestly, they're giving them shit about eating sweets. Ugh. <sighs> They beat him to within an inch of his life and finally stop. Whitley is immediately transported back to his bed, the female Grey standing at bedside. Andrew starts screaming. Whitley tries to get out of bed, but cannot move. The female tells him, he is being punished for your transgression. 
Whitley screams for Anne to no avail. Eyes filled with tears, he is overwhelmed with the feeling the house was being infested by giant insects the size of a tiger. Then, everything stops. The house is now silent. The beings are gone. Whitley starts to get up to check out his son, but passes out immediately after something hits him in the back of the head. The instant he wakes up in the morning, he goes straight to his son, who's sleeping peacefully. One afternoon, on their way to the cabin, Whitley and his son notice something strange about the BMW beside them. In the back seat, the two observe a giant, blurry Siamese cat with ears the size of human hands. The man at the wheel looks perfectly normal, a regular guy in his 40s. Whitley turns to Anne to tell her to check it out. The cat is gone when he looks again. It's the visitors. So, like, Whitley's just, like, just going through some weird shit here. It's a lot of weird shit. One evening, Whitley sees two tall figures dressed in white moving through his yard. He goes outside to investigate, but doesn't see anything. Later on, in the middle of the night, he gets up and gets a glass of water. Looking at the pre-dawn outside the window, he has a vision of a TV screen about a foot away, from his face showing the long gray hand of a visitor pointing at a box on a gray floor. The hand is long and thin, with four fingers, with black claw-like nails. The image causes an intense sexual reaction in him. Quote, I have never known anything like it before or since, end quote. The blast of pure sexual energy causes him to have an out-of-body experience. He floats to his room and sees Anne and one of the cats, who were not at the cabin at the time, sleeping in bed. Outside the window, he sees the face of a gray and takes it as a warning to not go out that way. After floating outside for a while, he travels back in time to his old house in San Antonio. He sees his father mowing the lawn outside at the crack of dawn. His father glances up at him and asks, When are you going to come help me? He immediately returns to his body in his bed. On December 23, 1986, at 3.30 a.m., Willie goes up to go to the bathroom, and when he lays back in bed, he feels a tingling, pulsating energy running through his body. He has the feeling that somebody is in the room, moving in quick strides. He gets the feeling he's being watched from the inside, like having another consciousness inside his mind. He is awakened by something slapping him on the shoulder. It's his old friend, the female Grey. She darts her head toward him with the jerking suddenness of an insect. He's absolutely horrified. She gracefully gestures at him to get up, which makes him want to touch her and cherish her. He wonders if she's as frightened of him as he is of her. He reaches for the camera on the bedside table, but sees his hand move away from it as if someone or something had control over them. She goes around behind him and he suddenly finds himself floating toward the bedroom door. He tries to grab a tape recorder on the desk, but misses it. Passing behind the couch in the living room, desperate for something that would test the reality of the experience, he grabs his Burmese cat, Sadie. He is taken outside, and everything goes black. 
Next thing he remembers is being in an ordinary room with a wall of bookcases and a desk. He spots books on the Civil War. Uh, a biography, um, various familiar novels from the 40s and 50s, some Kafka and some books on mathematics. Uh, a book is pulled partway out of a shelf um, as if to draw his attention to it. Thomas Wolfe's You Can Never Go Home Again. The being behind the desk looks like a man with a very long face, round black eyes, and a shitty curly black toupee on his head. He's wearing a green plaid flannel shirt, baggy khaki pants, and a wide belt. Quote, he looked like something from another world wearing clothes from the 40s, end quote. On his left, he sees a tall blonde man with a very flat face and a tan suit with many pockets and flaps on it, like a Rob Liefeld character. <laughs> he reminded me uh, of a son looking with forlorn love at his senile parent, end quote. On his right, he sees a woman in a blue jumpsuit holding a small black case in her hand. He sees some wariness and pity in her eyes. The female gray behind him thrusts a stool under him and he sits down abruptly. The visitors ask him why he brought, it, brought the cat. I'm reality testing. They look at each other completely confused. Like, th this is what you're getting, folks. Like, th th these experiences are so damn strange. The ambiance in the room changes completely. Streber feels some kind of mental pressure being exerted on him. I suddenly felt a need to really explain the cat. He goes on and explains, I've made cats part of the family. They have to be taken when we're taken. They have to participate in the life of the family. It's their right. It's their right to be abducted by aliens. Thanks, Whitley. I... What the hell, dude? The visitors inform him that she has to be uh, put to sleep. Horrified, he argues with them that it's his son's cat and doesn't know how he's supposed to explain it to him. The visitors reassure him. No, put to sleep for now. The woman in a blue jumpsuit pulls a small object looking like two triangles made out of brass out of her case. She touches the cat's thigh with it which causes Sadie to sink into unconsciousness instantly. She was still as death, Streber remembers having witnessed the visitors do that to people numerous times. The visitors ask what they can do to help. Streber replies, you could help me fear you less. The woman in a blue jumpsuit applies the, the brass device to onto his neck which leaves a small knot with a red spot the next morning. And he is taken to a small dark room by the female Grey, who has a crooked smile on her face, as if she's pleased by something. He sits down in a chair, and all of a sudden, the female Grey no longer seems all-powerful. She now seems feeble and vulnerable and old, and Streber feels a cherishing feeling toward her. From behind me, there was what I can only describe as a sardonic snort full of power and derision. I was with a proud warrior. End quote. Streber and Sadie are brought back to the cabin. He puts her in Andrew's bed and heads to his room. 
There's a lot of commotion during the night. Lily hears people walking around the house and voices softly laughing. The next morning, at the breakfast table, Andrew starts complaining about the visitors. They're strict with me. Are they real? They can be. Sadie is traumatized by the experience. Quote, she would sit staring for hours and she appeared uneasy. I would work all day with her sitting in my lap. A Canadian filmmaker friend of mine, David Cherniak, commented five weeks after the incident that she seemed like a shocked cat, end quote. Sadie eventually got better and returned to her old self, though. Streever promises he will never take her with him again, as if it was obviously very hard on her. Um, no shit. Like, Whitley, talking about, like, eh, I'm gonna bring a cat with me because it seems like a good idea. They deserve to be abducted. What the fuck? A few weeks later, Streever attempts to face the visitors in the woods again. On the way, he hears a horrible shrieking sound. He thinks it's an owl, but the dogs in the Hudson Valley are going nuts. Terrified, he gives up on his walk and returns to the cabin. The shrieks seem to be following him. The lights in the house seem unusually brighter than usual. He spots a visitor inside in full light staring at him. To his horror, the door is locked. He can hear the shower start. He pounds on the door, but Anne cannot hear him. He runs around the house and finds the basement door open. He rushes in and takes the stairs only to find out the door at the top of the stairs is locked as well. He fears they're going to eat his family's souls, abduct them all, and do horrifying experiments on them. Like, Lily goes back and forth, back and forth with these visitors. Like, goddamn, this is like a toxic relationship. He goes to the side of the house and starts throwing stones at the window. He hears Anne screaming for help. God help me, Whitley. Please come home, Whitley. I'm here, he shouts. She finally hears him, comes downstairs with a towel around her, and unlocks the door. She thought the sound of the stones hitting the windows were the visitors coming in and panicked. I felt them all around me while I was in the shower. It was like they were right there. Whitley tells her he saw one in the house. She admits that she is afraid of them as well. The next morning, Andrew announces that he's not afraid of the visitors anymore. At least not much. The next night, Whitley challenges the woods one more time. Tears running down his face, shaking with terror. He finally makes it to the spot where he was abducted on December 26, 1985. There, slow shadows start approaching him. The shadows start moving closer, and he prepares himself mentally the best he can. A family of deer walk out into the starlight. A young buck stops and turns towards him. Eye to eye, we regarded one another. The moment extended, deepened. We were impossibly close, each of us as still as the laden trees. He seemed like a friend, a fellow sufferer of sorts. This wary, nervous creature. Following the release of Transformation, Streber goes on various talk shows across the world to promote his book and share his experiences with the visitors. He is met with ridicule and treated like an absolute farce, and his book sales started to plummet. Seven years later, 
breakthrough hits the shelves and sold even worse than transformation. So we're going to cover a lot here. Like the bulk of this episode is a breakthrough. Um, brace yourselves. This is going to be a long one, folks. January 7th, 1988. Whitley wakes up abruptly before dawn to the sound of what he thinks is a trumpet. He gets the urge to go outside. He quickly puts his slippers on, grabs his robe, and races downstairs. He goes past the hill behind the cabin and deep into the woods. Through the trees, he sees a large gray object and hears a voice exclaim, He's naked! in disgust. He believes the visitors meant naked as in vulnerable and not physically naked. He ventures deeper into the woods and hears another familiar voice say, Come on, come on, in an impatient tone. Coming from the meadow, he hears the sound of machinery, which he associates with the machines of the visitors. Thrown in, in, a, thrown in a state of intense fear, he heads back to the cabin. The instant his hand touches the doorknob, he hears three sharp cries coming from the meadow beyond the woods. He turns and looks back. Those remain the most emotionally alive, most heart-rending sounds I have ever heard. They were so vibrant with love, longing, with hurt that I can hardly express their impact. I have since realized that they were also incredibly rich, far richer than music, richer than the most emotional of our voices. He believes the experience was a lesson to teach him why a meeting was not yet possible. He goes back to bed and almost instantly feels an invisible presence in the room. He is transported back to his uh, babyhood. His adult consciousness enters his baby body and he re-experiences his first steps. A few months later, he is back in his bedroom at the cabin. Later that day, he goes back to the meadow, but finds no evidence of what happened earlier. February 27th, 1988. Eighteen months to the day after the Nine Knocks incident at the cabin, a large number of people in Glen Rock, Wyoming, are awakened at 2.45 a.m. by a series of Nine Knocks in three groups of three. The Glen Rock Independent reports the incident on March 3rd. Residents report seeing a UFO in the area, cars malfunctioning, and small children in aluminum suits running through their yard in the middle of the night. The police got almost 50 prowler and disturbance calls that night. Whitley received letters from people reporting having experienced the knocks from all over the country. Streber learns from a personal fitness trainer from Los Angeles named Swale Fenley, now a painting contractor in the Houston area, that... In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the concept of three groups of three refers to progress in past, present, and future time. He relates this to the widespread ancient notion of the three-in-one, positive, negative, and balancing forces, being the basis of the universe. He believes the nine knocks are a call to ascension, to rise above the, the plane of life upon which we have created and where we have always delved. Whitley also remarks that the pattern of three knocks is important in some Masonic initiations. 
The rhythm also appears in Mozart's Masonic opera, The Magic Flute. Quote, it's an indication of a move from a lower level to a higher. One rainy night, while meditating in the middle of his stone circle he built in the woods, where he was taken in December of 1986, Whitley asked the visitors in his mind to take him with them on an abduction. He goes to bed and wakes up at 3 a.m. in an altered state, feeling static electricity running all over his body. Drawn by some mysterious force, he floats downstairs and heads outside on the deck. There he sees a bizarre vehicle in the corner, about the size of a car, is shoved inside by a group of young women. It's cramped with two seats in the front and two immediately behind, and a bay in the back stacked with thick black logs. They turn out to be the little blue dwarves. They stack them. Holy shit. Those little blue dwarves are stackable. I love it. Between the two front seats is a large metal globe. Whitley is seated in the, in the left front seat next to a man dressed in white. Whenever he tries to look at him, he turns away. It's like that scene in Tim Burton's Batman where Kim Basinger is in the passenger seat of the Batmobile and Batman tries to hide, tries to hide his face when she looks at him. A voice behind Whitley announces that they are going to, quote, see a child and her greatly distressed mother. The man in white moves his hand across the metal globe. Light be lights begin flying past them. There's no sense of motion, a total lack of movement. All of a sudden, they're in some neighborhood in Boulder, Colorado. Whitley recognizes the house that they're approaching. It's the home of an old friend of his, Dora Ruffner, and her daughter. Accompanied by a group of small floating blue dwarves, Whitley walks into the house. This, this almost feels like a Christmas carol in a way, you know? They walk past a mysterious woman wearing a windbreaker sitting at the kitchen table. The visitors direct Whitley upstairs to Dora's bedroom. Quote, when I looked down on her in her bed, my heart almost burst with the intensity of the emotion I felt. She was so small and helpless looking, but so incredibly, surprisingly beautiful. She lay with her hand out as if in a blessing, end quote. Suddenly he hears a horrible scream coming from the daughter's room. He runs downstairs, hitting his shoulder on the wall while making a turn, storms into the girl's room, bathing in a bright light and sees a, quote, stick figure with liquid eyes, striking the base of the girl's spine with a small object. Their eyes meet. The girl seems to recognize Whitley. Her spine is glowing through her skin as if the bone was burning like coal. This almost feels like um, uh, Betty Andreessen's kind of experience with the um, phoenix. The stick figure, it's a gray, releases the girl and rushes towards Whitley. He feels the creature is embarrassed and that the girl's spine was stiffened to provide her the strength and determination she would need for the rest of her life. The embarrassment seems to stem from a feeling that screaming and pain were inappropriate, that the whole thing could have been much different, more gentle, more conscious, more reflective of the beauty of the inner work that was done. The woman in the windbreaker comes into the room and comforts the girl. 
Whitley and the visitors return to the Batmobile. He is returned to the cabin. The next morning, he gets two phone calls from Dora. One about a weird dream about him the night before, and the other about her daughter. Uh, she hands her the phone, and she proceeds to tell Whitley that a fairy came to visit her that night. About ten days later, Whitley gets another phone call from Dora. Her daughter, teacher, her daughter's teacher wants to meet him. Months later, while in Boulder for a conference, Strieber finally meets the teacher, who wore a white windbreaker that day. She tells him about a UFO experience and a weird dream she had in which she was walking down a street in the middle of the night. Whitley thinks she's the woman in the windbreaker. Whitley gives a copy of the chapter about uh, his little trip to Colorado with the visitors to Dora. Upon reading it, she recalls Whitley telling her that he was in her room to do a job, to keep her in there, because something was being done to her daughter. She also recalls Whitley putting a slab on her and holding her down, which he had completely blocked out. Man, these experiences. During a convention in San Francisco, the visitors ask Whitley to introduce Dora to Ed Conroy, a journalist originally investigating claims that Strieber was the leader of a UFO cult who will eventually write an independent investigation and commentary on communion called Report on Communion, the facts behind the most controversial true story of our time, and have his own experiences with the visitors. Minutes before they're introduced, Ed told Whitley that he fell in love with a character from one of his previous novels, Cat Magic. Whitley reveals that the character in question was based on Dora. The two immediately fall in love and get married and have a child. Strieber later finds out that the morning before the two met, Ed heard a voice telling him that today you'll meet a woman who you'll take back home with you. Dora tells Whitley that her daughter has been getting strange nightly visits from the baby Jesus, and that upon seeing the cover of Communion, she exclaimed, Oh, there's one of Whitley's friends. She also describes the curious events that led to the conception of the child she had with Ed. Reading him the chapter, Whitley gave her a copy of the manuscript, uh, about Whitley and the visitor's little trip to her house in the middle of the night, they suddenly got very tired and a strong sexual energy filled the room. She felt a presence in the room asking her to surrender to Ed. That lovemaking could mean another person being made. A soul was there and it wanted to be born, end quote. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Ed recalls, I really felt like I got asked to make a baby. Of course, it could just be that I was at my f fertile moment, but I never felt anything like that before. Whitley sells the rights to War Day for half a million and starts working on the movie adaptation with his friend, Philip Mora. Um, uh, he was the director of The Howling Three. They get Christopher Walken on board, but then Communion becomes such a massive hit, they decide to turn it into a movie first, and Strieber starts working on the script. Quote, what I'm trying to do is to capture the emotional impact of the experience as it affected me and my whole family. It's a drama about a family under tremendous pressure from an unknown source. His brother, 
Richard handles the business side of things. They try to sell it to big studios such as MGM and Columbia Pictures, but they won't let Streber and Mora have creative control. So they decide to finance the movie independently. Mora has his own strange experience with the visitors. One night, while staying at the cabin, he and Whitley and Anne go on a walk one evening and see three to four meteors in the space of 20 minutes. Then they all go to bed. Mora recalls having a horrible nightmare that night in which a powerful light came blasting through the windows and the crack beneath the bedroom door. He tried to turn the light on in the room, but was pushed back into bed. Then he remembers standing outside the guest room in the kitchen area. The whole cabin lit up with moving lights. He recalls looking through Andrew's bedroom and Anne rushing up to him saying, whatever you do, don't wake Andrew. Streber describes ma the making of the film being a miserable experience. He had to constantly fight with the investors to keep scenes in. He felt he didn't have the full creative control and the movie suffered as a result. He was also critical of Christopher Walken's performance and felt he was playing him a little too crazy, to which Walken replied, if the shoe fits. Mora claims the whole crew saw a UFO during the rooftop scene shot in Soho, and Whitley originally wanted Dan Aykroyd to play him. In the fall of 1988, while working on the communion movie, Whitley was a co-producer and screenwriter, he is contacted by Drew Cummings, a filmmaker who wants to make a TV documentary to coincide with the release of the film. Streber agrees, hoping the visitors will make contact and allow the crew to take video footage of them. Cummings, eager to come to the cabin and capture the visitors on film, specifically lets Whitley know that he is not committed to his ideas. Looking for a way to get the visitors' attention, he remembers a cave in the woods with a lot of local legends attached to it. Streber hypothesizes it was a medicine site during or before the woodland Native American period before a ritual axe head was found there, and decides to go to the cave to show his eagerness for contact with the visitors. Um, this also just like makes makes it into the movie too, which is which is strange. A week before Cummings and the crew are due, he heads to the cave at ten o'clock at night. The hike is terrifying. The woods are seething with activity. Woodland creatures are roaming around in the dark. Raccoons growl at him, concealed in the shadows. In absolute blackness, he finally finds the cave. He squeezes into the narrow entrance, turns off his flashlight, sits down and starts meditating. I did overtone chanting, a vocal discipline I had taught myself years before after listening to a record of Tibetan monks. He waits for a long period of time, but nothing happens. He goes home and goes to bed. His next attempt the next night is way more successful. After sitting in the dark for five minutes, he starts hearing low voices coming from inside the stones around him. He can't quite make out the words and wonders if he's not just hearing the echo of the voices of campers in the area. He starts feeling a pleasant tingling sensation. He opens his eyes. His entire body is glowing with a blue light 
bright enough to reflect off the stone walls around him. The light seemed to be coming from inside of him. There's a warm breeze blowing through his bones. The glow eventually fades along with the pleasant sensation. Quote, I almost felt as if I'd taken on new physical properties, as if I was starting to become something else. For a moment, it had seemed as if the earth itself was conscious and had in some way been talking to me, and that I had been changing, my body altering cell by cell. A couple of days later, Whitley's friends start arriving. Among them, Lori Barnes, Raven Dana, and Colleen Langley, all of, all of whom he met through their letters. And Fred Max, a hypnotist who had experiences with uh, close encounter witnesses. Ed Conroy and Dora were also invited. Um, call Whitney for last-minute directions. In the course of the conversation, Conroy mentioned seeing a mysterious black helicopter come down to the window of his apartment, which uh, is strange because he lived downtown in the middle of a crowded area. So all of a sudden, the clatter of a helicopter on the TV seems to leap out of the screen and fill the entire room. Whitley is so startled he drops his phone. The group rush out to the deck and all witness a bizarre, massive helicopter, quote, by far the largest I have ever seen, end quote. The mysterious helicopter slowly went off over the woods and they lose sight of it. Amused by the bizarre coincidence, the group finish the movie and go to bed for the night. Streber is awakened in the middle of the night by a beeping sound. He hears the voice of a young soldier telling him to get up and go to the window, or really get up and get down with the sickness, I don't know. Whitley obeys, opens the screen, and sees the helicopter again. He hears another voice, this time female, tell him, We've got to shine a light on your forehead. He stares at the helicopter as it starts maneuvering in a strange manner. The machine was so steady it looked as if it was standing on a, on a tabletop. He hears what sounds like someone reading a list very quickly. Simultaneously, he sees a series of images of the cave. Then he finds himself leaning out of the bedroom window, face pressed against it. The helicopter is gone. He is back to bed and fall asleep. The next morning, Cummings and his crew arrive and set up their equipment. That evening, the crew records some interviews for the documentary, and Whitley starts hearing that voice reading a list again. He can't make out the words. He soon discovers that, if he relaxes, he starts interacting with the rest of the group in a weird, automatic manner. Quote, as if I was an external observer to my own words and actions. He finds himself saying he wants to take one group to the cave. Cummings says he couldn't take the equipment because it's too bulky. He's surprised to hear himself say they're going to a place where the visitors stay when they're in the area and that they should try to get them to come to the house and go on camera. Whitley takes a group of people to the cave. They stay there for half an hour. Nothing happens. Feeling like an idiot, he decides to take them back to the cabin. They return drenched, covered in mud, with their clothes ripped to shreds and a few bruises. 
The filmmakers who stayed behind say they've heard various sounds in the house while the group was gone and got spooked. They set up a low-light camera and all go to bed. Due to the house being overcrowded, Whitley, his son Andrew, Ed, and Dora pitch some tents in the middle of the stone circle in the woods and spend the night there. The next morning, on their way to the cabin, Whitley and Andrew witness a small hooded figure made out of silver mist move swiftly along the deck across the backyard. The figure darts from side to side to avoid trees and disappears into the woods. Inside, they find the filmmakers in a state of alarm. They had a rough night and just moments before had a startling experience. In the hours before dawn, one of them was awakened by a couple of blows on the couch, which they were sleeping on. Outside the window, they saw a small figure with black, big black eyes. Then it turned into an apparition with a head of an eagle and disappeared. There was a heat so intense in the room it felt like the bed was on fire, which caused the crew member to leap up in fright. Again, this is like very Betty Andreessen-ness. Cummings reviews the footage but finds nothing out of the ordinary except a few strange sounds. Amazed, he got close to having an alien encounter. He leaves the cabin a, a skeptic, but a shaken one. Raven Dana comes staggering out of her room, her face flushed, her eyes swollen shut and, and streaming, her lungs hissing like something with a severe cold or hay fever. She announces that she has seen the visitors. The night before, Dana Raven woke up in the middle of the night because something triggered the automatic lights outside. She opened the window because she was hot and went back to bed. She woke up again later on thinking a critter had come through the window. She felt something crawling on the bed. The thing stopped moving. She turned her head and saw the outline against the window. Quote, it was crouched, as if it didn't expect me to wake up, end quote. The creature is about the size of a small child, a mostly human-looking head, no hair, long black eyes, and thin long arms. The creature smells woodsy, like wet animal fur. They touched hands. She describes its skin being soft and cold. Meanwhile, Colleen was in an adjacent room. She heard scraping coming from down the hall. Her door opens suddenly and a being with a long face and big black eyes comes into the room and told her telepathically, relax, we are not going to do anything with you. She had the feeling that they just wanted to see who was in there and let her know they had no interest in her. She felt paralyzed and went back to bed. July 6, 1989. Streber is reading in bed when he notices movement in the hallway. A short gray hazy figure races toward him. Mad with rage, Whitley leaps out of bed and hurls his bedside table at it, screaming, you'll never get me. You'll never get me. The table shatters, startled, and throws her book in the air and jumps out of bed. Panicked, and Whitley explains what just happened and asks her if she saw it too, but alas, did not. As they pick up the remains of the table, Anne starts questioning Whitley's ability to go on with these experiences. Just you're getting too fucked up here, Whitley. Days later, one night, 
Whitley comes home to several messages from his brother, Richard, on his answering machine, repeatedly asking him to call him back immediately. He woke up in the middle of the night because of what he thought was a helicopter over his house. He sat up in bed and saw a dark hooded figure, about three foot tall, at the foot of his bed. It started coming up beside the bed. Richard was so scared he grabbed his electric guitar and threw it as hard as he could. The being shot up in the air and out through the top of the window. Quote, I had the feeling it was scared too, and that I might even have heard it. The next morning, he found a neat circle of glass cut out of the top of the window. Tell them they got the wrong Streber. That thing scared the hell out of me, and I want no part of it. Unlike you, I don't like to be terrified. Streber gets a phone call from Ed Conroy a few days later. He came home from vacation and found three shards of glass placed side by side in his foyer. Streber feels suddenly overwhelmed with love from the visitors. He looks back on his previous experiences and deduces that, quote, they wanted to literally enter me and become part of me, end quote. I now saw a new and incredible aspect of contact. They weren't just here to meet us, to shake hands, to trade histories. They wanted something far deeper, far more intimate than we have ever had with each other, end quote. Still, Whitley feels he's nowhere close to getting past his fear of them. Whitley has no contact with the visitors for several months. In early October, a neighbor comes over uh, one weekend to discuss some work that needed to be done on the cooperative road. Whitley starts hearing a high-pitched drilling sound coming from under the house. His body gets affected when, they're, when the drilling reaches a certain frequency. His skin feels like it's tightening and getting hot. Suddenly, the neighbor's forehead starts gushing blood. Ann Whitley get him some tissues, and they manage to stop the bleeding. Later on, Whitley, his son Andrew, and his friend go on another neighbor's house. They found a dead black dog on their porch earlier that week. The neighbor's wife walks in saying, The cat's lost too. At the moment she utters the word cat, Andrew's friend starts bleeding from his nose. Lo and behold, his baseball cap has the word cat emblazoned in big block letters. The boy claims he never had a nosebleed before. Whitley goes as far as calling the boy's parents to verify his claim, and they concur. Months later, the Strebers start hearing soft, repeated thuds from underground back along the ridges of their cabin. After that, they would never again be lights in the sky at night associated with the visitors. Streber hypothesizes that the visitors have perhaps built an underground base beneath the ridge. A field about a mile from there has been the source of many UFO sightings over the years, and in the town of Pine Bush, New York, near the Hudson Valley, UFOs are routinely photographed and sometimes emerging from the ground or disappearing into it. A group from New York has often encountered the visitors in one form or another on a road in that area. One night, Andrew's best friend is staying with them at the cabin. Whitley wakes up in the middle of the night around 3 a.m. with the feeling that something frightening was happening to him. At first, he thinks he's having a heart attack, but it wasn't painful. There was a buzzing sensation inside his chest affecting his breathing. 
He sits straight in bed and finds himself floating like a bubble and going through the floor into his son's bedroom. He sees a man in the room and becomes that man. He tells the boys goodnight and heads back upstairs to his room. He lays in bed for a while and decides to go back to his son's room to check on him. Both are sleeping peacefully. The next morning, he brings up the incident to the boys. They both recall the incident, but not a single word that had been said. Later that day, Whitley takes Andrew's friend to meet his father at their usual place, a diner on Route 17 in New Jersey. The two cross the New York-New Jersey border and begin to pass an almost continuous line of shopping centers, fast food restaurants, and stores. They see the boy's father's truck in the parking lot as they approach the exit. The moment they take it, the shopping malls around them disappear. They're now going down a ramp that wasn't there before. Whitley thinks he took the wrong turn, but they enter a sunken highway, and the sound in the car becomes suddenly less loud. They're surrounded by high concrete walls with foliage at the top. They're in a completely unknown area. They go beneath an underpass and see another ramp ahead. They both start to get nervous. Quote, I'd been up and down these roads many times and I was completely at a loss. End quote. They reach the exit and find themselves in a sunny area with wide, completely empty streets. Whitley locks the doors, fearing the boy might jump out of the car because he seemed really upset at that point. The houses are set back from the street. The lawns are heavily planted with emerald green grass. Houses are one story and have no roof. They look like huge boxes made of tan stone etched with carvings of large serpents. This sure ain't Jersey. Whitley takes a couple of turns and eventually sees an entrance to the highway. They go down the highway, suddenly full of traffic. Quote, it was all very familiar, except that it was Route 80, which was about 20 miles from the diner. We'd gone all that distance in just a few minutes and on our road back. He returns on 17 and lets the boy off with his father. He excitedly tells him the whole story, and the two spend a good bit of time looking for the mysterious neighborhood with no success. Whitley goes back later and follows maps until he is certain he has covered every road in the area. He uses a pen to mark off the streets as he, is, as he goes down them. He covers every street on both sides of 17 near the diner. He goes down Route 80 and discovers that the entrance ramp that they had used to reach it does not exist. Well, no kidding. Streber theorizes that they briefly entered another reality or saw a glimpse of the future. He hears voices, choppy but full of warbling intensity. He's now operating under the assumption that he has entered a dream state. The voices are now singing a sorrowful, atonal chant, sung accompanied with some sort of drum. He turns around and around, trying to find his bearings. He thinks he's out on the ridges behind the cabin, but all the trees are dead. He gets closer and closer to the voices and ends up in a clearing. At the center, he sees a black, cracked ditch, and clustered alongside it a group of tiny, thin people. Two bearded men, three women like prune-faced trolls with heavy eyebrows. Children clung to them filthy and drenched. 
The group starts coming towards him. They look sickly. One of the men is wearing a rough garment made of a bark or matted reed. The rest of them are naked, brown with filth and scabs. Just hideous. He could see one of the women's teeth right through her cheek, maggots moving in her swollen purple skin, clouds of flies surrounding them. They all stop at once, as if they were turned off. He notices that the men are carrying stones. One of the men has a lacrosse stick with a noose on it. He feels an electric flutter in his body. They all act surprised. He's amused by their reaction. They start approaching him. He suddenly finds himself standing in front of the cabin. Grateful, he looks up at the cold, dark sky and thinks he went back in time. Quote, I no longer believe that time was frozen. To my own personal observation, it seemed to be functioning much like a fluid. The visitors had now completely shattered my model of self and universe. I no longer trusted my own assumptions, not any of them. I didn't know what I was or where I was in space and time. They had freed me, in this sense, from slavery of expectation, end quote. A year goes by. Whitley is deeply saddened by the absence of the visitors in his life. In 1991, he is contacted by congressional staffers who are investigating the intelligence community in the Roswell incident and has to answer all kinds of questions about his sources for his 1989 novel, Majestic. Whitley dedicates an entire chapter to a friend named Michael Talbot, a promising young writer whom he greatly admired. Schreiber thinks he wrote the best novel about vampires. Dying of cancer and well aware of Schreiber's a special relationship with the visitors, he gives him a call and asks Whitley if he can get the visitors to help him with his disease. That night, he prays to the visitors and asks for their help. A month later, he gets a letter from Michael in which he describes waking up to a pack of wolves in his bedroom. They leaped on him and ate the tumor itself. Following the, the experience, he feels a little stronger, but in reality, the tumor is getting worse. Whitley decides to organize a weekend at the cabin with a group of friends, including government people. One of them, who conveniently happens to also be a psychic. One morning, around 5 a.m., Whitley decides to go take a walk in the woods. He suddenly feels that tingling sensation associated with the visitors. Here's a voice downstairs and follows it. Halfway down the stairs, he sees Michael standing in front of the front door, talking to a gray, wearing a gray dress and a white wig, holding a paper bag full of squash. He hears Michael say, quote, Are you trying to sell those vegetables? End quote. Streber is stunned. Michael seems to think he's dealing with a bag lady or a beggar. Michael glares at Whitley. She's dead broke. She can't be dead broke. She owns the world. I'd give you three dollars for the squash, but I don't have my wallet. Whitley feels he's in the presence of greatness in the form of a mother. Suddenly, Michael jerks towards the door. His face pressed against it so hard, Whitley can hear the glass crack. The visitor, also up against the door, begins to speak to him. Michael raises his hands and presses them against the glass. Whitley doesn't remember what happened next. 
His next memory is of waking up in bed. He gets dressed and heads downstairs. Later at breakfast, Michael tells him about a weird dream he had the night before in which a strange, deformed old lady tried to sell him vegetables. I told her I didn't have my wallet. Then you came down the stairs and started whispering she was the creator of the universe or something. Schreiber tells him it was no dream, that he was actually there. Michael just laughs at the whole thing and can't be convinced it wasn't a dream. The weekend comes to an end. Everyone goes their separate ways. Weeks later, Streber gives Michael a call. His tumor is getting aggressive and is getting very sick. The two friends start crying, knowing they're talking to each other for the last time and say goodbye. About a month later, while meditating in the guest room at the cabin, Whitley feels a dark evil presence. On the floor in front of him, he sees a giant black salamander with a glowing thread connecting it to him. To his horror, the thread is in its jaws, unreeling out of his chest. He storms out of the room, turning on lights and shutting doors behind him. Pacing down the hall, he goes into his bedroom and gets under the covers with Anne. Unsure if he imagined the whole thing, tossing and turning, he tries to read and pray but can't concentrate. He feels a pain inside his chest, like a burn. He has the impulse to pull at his skin, to get it open, get at the wound. Worried, he thinks he scared himself so badly, he was having a heart attack. He holds on to Anne and eventually falls asleep in her arms. The next morning, still shaking with terror, sweating bullets, he heads toward the guest bedroom to meditate and sees billows of glowing smoke all around him. His first thought is that the house has exploded, but there's no sound. The smoke is moving very slowly like a cloud mass. Out of the center of the smoke, he sees a blue glowing hand come out, as if it was finding its way along a string. The hand touches his chest and then his hand. Whitley grasps the hand and hears Michael's voice in his head. The voice is pleading, howling, not wanting to go, not understanding why. My mind almost closed down. Such was the terror I felt and the anguish, a grinding, cutting anguish of soul. I remember telling him that it wouldn't last forever, that there would be deliverance. Their hands separate and everything goes back to normal. Clutching his chest, he sinks down and starts weeping. He has the feeling that Michael had just died and had been taken to hell. He lays on the floor and prays to God to save Michael's soul. Then he feels at peace, as if every cell in his body had surrendered. He finally sees that good and evil as one, angels and demons as different aspects of the same vast compassion. Hell is only what we make it. Mercy is everywhere in the air, and in the heart, the old light that sings us through babyhood. I saw beyond good and evil, thanks to Michael, and I saw that my attempt to classify the visitors as one or the other was just an illusion, and was the reason they had withdrawn from me. I realized that the visitors viewed good and evil as tools of the soul. End quote. Two days later, he gets a call from a friend. 
Whitley's name was on a list of those to be informed in the events of Michael's death. And after some struggle, he passed away quietly two days before. Two months later, in their new Brooklyn Heights apartment, Wick Whitley hears quick, stealthy footsteps coming up the stairs. Thinking he's dealing with a burglar, he goes through his old routine of meticulously looking under every bed and closet in the house. Nothing. All of a sudden, he's jumped from behind. He staggers and shouts, then realizes it's a visitor. His heart starts hammering. Love, fear, and desire rush through him. The visitor is clutching his hips with her thighs. Two thin arms are protruding in front of him, pinning his arms to the sides. The visitor is extraordinarily strong. There's no feeling of muscle or fat. She's soft on the surface, like bone covered in deer skin. The being is surprisingly heavy, at least 40 or 50 pounds. He calls for Anne to no avail. He suddenly feels love coming from her. He wants to hug her, kiss her, and make up for all the years of struggle they'd been through. He has the impression that the being is a young woman, the same who called him from the woods years ago. He feels wanted, needed, and desired. He's gasping for air, sobbing, staggering, trying to get in the bedroom and wake Anne up. Anne sits up in bed, but it's too late. The visitor is gone. Summer comes, and Sadie gets seriously sick with thyroid problems. Back at the new cabin, he starts going out in the woods again. He's drawn to an old Indian burial ground and starts meditating there regularly. After his experience with Michael, he wants to indicate to the visitors that he wants to find out more about their relationship with death. Anne warns, don't make them think you want to be killed. In July of 1992, hiking in the woods behind the cabin one afternoon, he stumbles upon a 12-year-old boy sitting against a big tree holding a cigarette. The woods were quite dry, so Whitley warns him, quote, Better be sure you put that out when you're finished, end quote. The kid is wearing a tan jumpsuit, his eyes deep set and his skin old. It's not a cigarette, but a small silver wand. Whitley is stricken with fear. The old man opens his mouth slightly and lets out a growl. Terrified, he takes off. Quote, to this day, I do not know if it was a real child or something else, end quote. At dinner that evening, Anne, who never sees the visitors but is always aware of their presence, warns him. They're here. They're always here. No, this time they're really here. You'll have a busy night. After dinner, he steps out on the front porch, and about 15 minutes later, he hears a loud thud on the roof. and can hear small creaks. Like, I get this idea that these visitors are just like Santa. They really are. Then another thud, then a third. In all, there are seven, forming a ring around him with the roof between them. Excited, he talks aloud and invites them in. He does overtone chanting and tries projecting thoughts, but nothing happens. The next night, he decides to go out to the woods, hoping for contact. Scared, he grabs a flashlight and heads to the burial ground, moving stiffly like a robot. 
finds two large logs laid in an X in the center, and the path to it was marked by Native American trail markers that he assumes were left by the visitors. He sits in the burial ground, and soon enough, he hears what he describes as the sound of an acrobatic troop crashing in the bushes. Too loud to be raccoons or deers, he shines the flashlight in the bushes, but sees nothing. Then he hears wheezing, like the blow of a deer, but much louder. The crashing begins to move, comes out into the clearing, and resolves into footsteps. Invisible figures pass by, and the wheezing starts, sounding like a small person sneezing with an allergy attack. He waits for a while, but nothing happens. He heads back to the cabin. The next night, he checks the roof for signs of animal infestation. Nothing. He heads into his bedroom and hears a lot of noises on the roof, like a crowd jostling for position. He sits down and an instant later, start flashing before his eyes. Everybody he has ever known. He feels like something is chasing him through his memories, like someone is reviewing his life. It stops on the face of someone he had wronged in the past. All of a sudden, the roof erupts with thud, like they're stomping with rage. A crowd of shadows reeking of sweat and human in appearance come down around him. They back into the corners, acting like he is a wild wolf. Attracted by the sounds, the cats come into the room and lay flat on their bellies with their tails all puffed up behind them. Seeing the cat's bizarre behavior does it for Whitley. He runs. The cats dart downstairs. The visitors all troop down the stairs, some of them jumping up and down on the runners, others leaping off the landing and dropping with soft thuds. He can hear them banging against the furniture in the living room. They're furious. For a moment, he thinks they're going to trash the place. Anne is sitting up in bed. They're noisy. Sadie starts hollering. Whitley forces himself to go downstairs to get her. He sees nothing. I told you they were coming. They're gone. It sounded like they were moving the furniture. I think they were mad. I think I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. Later that night, Whitley is awakened by a familiar jab to his shoulder. He opens his eyes and sees short humans with a light around them. All men wearing gray tunics with short sleeves and cinched with a black belt, except for one whose tunic is white. Their arms are thin. Their hands are rather large. Behind them, where the raftered ceiling should be, is a black, starless maw. Something about the darkness frightens him. Their eyes are black and their stare ferocious. He feels their minds pushing and probing him. Whitley promises them he will never commit another sin. He looks back into their penetrating, enlarged eyes. They leave abruptly and he throws off the covers and chases after them. It's too late, though. They're gone. He goes back to bed and drifts asleep, only to wake up to another frightful sight again, this time in the form of four giant hourglass spiders on the ceiling. He feels something strange going on under the covers. 
He pulls back the sheets, and it's the cats, frozen and hissing in terror. He takes off, feeling bad for leaving Anne behind with those monsters. He comes back into the bedroom, and above her sees the spiders, weaving curved hutches made of silk. Feeling he was being punished, he begs the spiders to forgive them. He wants to howl, but it's afraid to upset the spiders. They're gone. He grabs Anne and kisses her. The cats are still frightened. He spends the rest of the night reading the Bible, trying to figure out how to repair a sin. And the next morning, at breakfast, he tells Anne, I've seen demons. Here? A nightmare. The mother of all nightmares. They sit out in the garden and count frogs, enjoying the peace of life. Then it hits him. Communication wasn't about getting forgiveness. It was about the journey to Eden, a lesson of consequences and guilt. Um, yeah, Whitley's going to start to get a little more religious with us all. Summer, 1993. Whitley hits a downward spiral. His book sales continue to plummet. He's the laughingstock of the UFO world. He is accused of being a UFO cult leader. And it's been 12 months since he's had any sort of contact with the visitors. And he's doing so badly financially, he has to sell the cabin. Most importantly, Sadie passes away. One night during his meditation routine... He feels the presence of the visitors again. He feels alien skin touching him and freaks out. He heads to bed and starts hearing movement, creaking floorboards. He waves his arms around, trying to feel the invisible presence to no avail. Then he asks out loud if they could let him smell them to help him fear them less. The sense of presence immediately disappears. In the middle of the night at 3 a.m., he is awakened by a slap to his leg. He opens his eyes and sees a shadowy figure standing beside the bed. It scares the shit out of him. The figure hops onto the foot of the bed and leads against the, bed's, the bedstead. And Whitley sees it's a small man wearing a white tunic. He describes the being as follows, quote, I could see that it was a man, small like the ones from the year before I had seen. His face was pretty shadowy lit only by the glow from my alarm system controls. But my impression was of pale skin rather than heavy features. But my impression was of pale skin and rather heavy features, perhaps even a little paunchy. He had black hair. The way he was slumped, he looked like a dead body. Whitley feels the visitor wants to get closer but is paralyzed with fear. He crawls towards him and sits on his knees beside him. Hi. Never looking at Whitley, the small, frail being holds up a knobby hand. Whitley grabs it. It's cool and oily, and of course, smells it. It has a strong, sweet scent, untroubled by soap. He wants to hug him, but the being reads his mind, and his hand shoots out of Whitley. Whitley's in a flash. Whitley apologizes. The little creature stares deeply into his eyes. Quote, I felt him come into me, felt him go down inside me, felt something starting to bloom, a flower opening, a fire starting, end quote. 
An unconscious fear reflex throws them both back. Whitley throws himself toward the head of the bed, and the visitor disappears in a flash. Flat on his back, Whitley backs out, like he had been injected with a drug. Over the next couple of days, um, Streeter, Streber and this figure develop the, the following routine. Whitley would read the Tao Te Ching and the Gospels in the original Greek during the day, and at midnight go to the guest room where this being would be waiting for him ready to explore his mind. Soon, the streepers start noticing movement around the house during the day. They hear doors closing in the basement and upstairs, and they smell his presence. It's like Yoda is living with them. To not scare him off, they don't acknowledge him or even talk about him on the phone or to other people. Whitley prowls around the house during the day, hoping to get a glimpse of his tiny little friend to no avail. He won't allow that. He never comes as close as he did the first couple of nights. Quote, usually at night in the room, he would be above me. He could float in the air and he could disappear in an instant. He could walk through walls, he could enter my mind. I was getting used to this last process. What had seemed so terrible a few years ago now came to to seem sensual and incredibly educational. I started to worry that he would leave me when he got to the end of me. End quote. So Yoda puts Whitley through a rigorous Jedi training regime. He wakes up at 3 a.m. and again at 6 a.m. They meditate for an hour at midnight, another hour at 3, a third at 6. In spite of this, quote, I felt no sense of sleep deprivation. In fact, my body began to feel wonderfully light, end quote. Yoda starts to leave little bits of candy in the basement library in front of books he wants to bring to Whitley's attention. He places half-sucked white candies in front of Life Between Life by Dr. Joel Witten and Joe Fisher. Whitley finishes the candies as, they, as he reads the book. It's about what existence might be like for souls destined to reincarnate while they reside between lives. He gets the odd feeling that Yoda is not a visitor at all, but a man who is in some way alive and dead at the same time. Some kind of soul that had taken on physical form without going through the process of birth. Yoda has some physical limitations. He will not manifest if the temperature drops below 20 degrees. He would not come unless he was already in the house. He sleeps during the day and is shy about it. Sometimes he uses the guest room. Whitley tries to film him, but he's not physically but he's not there physically. He eventually quits trying to capture Yoda on film though. Whitley is madly in love with him. Quote, "How I loved him. I had never loved anybody else like this." Sorry, Anne, I guess. I didn't know his name. I rarely saw him. I'd never hear him speak. But he knew me vastly better than anybody else had. One night, Whitley is awakened by a cacophony of sounds coming from downstairs. He sits up straight in bed and hears a voice drifting up from the family room below. Yona finally speaks to him. It's me. Whitley bizarre bizarrely reacts by rushing through the house with a gun in his hand in absolute terror. 
Halfway through the living room, he comes to his senses and apologizes to him. He dashes upstairs, and now Yoda is in the bedroom. The tiny sensei jumps up to the roof as soon as he sees Streber. Whitley immediately goes down in, med in a meditation position and frantically apologizes to Yoda in his mind. Quote, I felt, this I felt his chagrin and his bitter disappointment, and I found myself saying, I will let you. I will manage it. Only please come back. Only Yoda never did come back. Whitley recalls the first time he came across a possible hidden government policy devoted to concealing evidence of extraterrestrials. In the summer of 1984, before the events of Communion, he got a phone call from Dr. John Glideman, who knew about his interest in scientific anomalies with an interesting proposition. He wants him to meet Richard Hoagland, who had just made the greatest discovery of our time. The two meet, and Hoagland shows Streber a fuzzy picture of the face on Mars. Whitley is flabbergasted. Hoagland goes on and explains that NASA won't deal with the pictures, that they rejected them as a trick of light. Hoagland claims NASA won't do more imaging on the face because they're hiding something, and that he and a small group of scientists who had been drawn to the mysterious face wanted to do more research but needed more money. Dr. Guideman thought Streber would be interested in giving a donation, which he did, and soon he too became involved with a group then known as the NARS Anomaly Research Society, Inc. Streber thus completely contradicts his claim in communion that he had no interest in flying saucers or aliens before the events of December 1985. Streber's role was to finance the new analysis of the data. He then claims that NASA purposefully sabotaged the Mars Observer mission and altered its long-standing policy of openness. Quote, as I write, he says, the battle rages. NASA is, in 1994, attempting to make censorship of incoming data a permanent part of the exploration process. In other words, to institutionalize compromise to the public trust while appearing to serve it. End quote. In other words... He got conned by Richard Hoagland. Whitley talks about his uncle, Colonel Edward Streber, a retired Air Force officer, whom he greatly respected and loved, despite never mentioning him before. His uncle was very proud of him for having written communion and conveniently mentioned that he had spent most of his career at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It was part of the cleaning crew that retrieved the craft that allegedly crashed in Roswell in July 1947. While working on communion, Whitley claims he got in touch with Dr. Robert Sarbacher, mentioned in the Roswell incident as the author of a letter stating that he'd worked with debris from the recovered craft. Whitley's uncle also informed him that he had knowledge of the Majestic Project. In 1991, after the release of Majestic, his uncle put him in touch with an old friend of his, General Arthur Exxon, the cousin of Senator Exxon, who himself had been interested in UFOs for years. The general reveals that President Truman, Secretary Forrestal, and others had been involved. I mean, by this time, the um, MJ-12 documents have been out there for quite some time. About a year later... Streber gets a phone call from someone from Congress. They want to discuss his sources for Majestic over lunch. 
And over lunch, they bombard each other with questions about UFOs and aliens and shadow governments. The two become friends, and Whitley puts him in touch with his sources. Out of nowhere, Whitley reveals that his father had connections in the FBI, and that the CIA was very mad at him because they felt he, Whitley, exposed them. He starts getting mysterious phone calls from some guy named Rotron. He tracks the calls. They come from Woodstock, New York. He calls and complains, and a voice tells him, We'll look into it, and please accept our apologies. And the call stopped. He looked deeper into Rotron. Turns out to be a company connected to Indian burial mounds in Area 51. He goes on and claims that in May 1994, his cabin was broken into, and someone not only examined the contents of his computer, but also left a virus that took two weeks to defeat and stole a $5,000 check, but he had it voided before it could be cashed. In September that year, the flow of letters from the public drops dramatically, going from an average of 300 to a month to a few. A postal investigation goes nowhere. Ed Conroy tells him, while he was writing Report on Communion, he had been officially informed that his mail had be was being opened in the course of an investigation. He then talks about an electronic mail he has received is readily available in the many places online. It can be downloaded from the New Age Forum Library on, Com on Compuverse. It's listed in the library section UFO Theories under the title Hackers Find UFO Information. It is in the public domain. A year later, in the midst of the Roswell fever, he follows up Majestic, a semi-fictional, historical, depend on, depending on who you ask, novel about the Roswell incident of 1947, based on stories told by his uncle and friends in high places with the government and a plethora of conspiracy theories that were circulating in UFO circles at the time. The book isn't quite a home run. It's going to take seven years before he releases another book about the visitors again. One night in 1994, Whitley is awakened by the sound of a vehicle approaching his driveway. Two people leave the car armed with high-intensity magnetic field generators and use them to freeze the burglar alarm and open the garage door. He hears the crunching of the gravel below his window. He hears a voice coming from outside the house call out, Condition Red. They rush upstairs. Whitley tries to move, but the bearded man and a delicate woman use their magnetic field generators to immobilize him. A small, familiar, shadowy figure comes in front of them and leans over him and closes his eyes with his fingers. It puts something in Whitley's earlobe. As soon as it's done, a bright light coming from above fills the room and the mysterious intruders race from the scene. Following the incident, Whitley starts hearing strange sounds. His ear gets hot and turns red, and streetlights, appliances go out in the proximity. Bizarrely, he never mentions that incident in Breakthrough, though. Only in uh, another source. In May of 1998, after hearing about Roger Lear's work on alien implants, he decided to have his removed. Not willing to have the surgery done in California, he schedules an appointment with a local Texas physician, Dr. John Lerma, coincidentally a big fan of his work. 
and films as Dr. Lerma proceeds with the surgery. A small disc-shaped object in Whitley's ear moves away from the touch of his scalpel. It keeps relocating itself as if it were alive. Puzzled, Lerma concludes that further attempts to remove it would be unwise. He manages to get a few fragments of the object and closes the incision. Under analysis, biologists find that the fragments have small tentacles on them and are filled with crystals, possibly calcium carbonate. And that's going to do it for this episode. This is the fever dream of whatever the hell Whitley Streber experienced. Um, first and foremost, thanks, special thanks to Jeff Demers for putting in all this research again. I feel good, like I'm going mad just from having done this all. Uh, and make sure, you know, just listen to this series. You owe it to Jeff to listen to this series all the way through. I know it's crazy and stuff, but uh, it, it's great. I love it. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. You can find all of that and our exclusive digital resource page so you can get lost down the rabbit hole of stuff I get lost in for, you know, a while. I have a P.O. Box if you want to send me stuff. It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. You can check out Welcome UFO People, the web comic that I write and that my buddy Todd Purse illustrates on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We also release high res images on our Patreon pages uh, if you are interested in that. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or floating above your room doing meditation with you at night. In gray, we trust. Yeah.